0: Thanks John. Well as we continue through the book of Revelation I found it very helpful this week looking a little deeper at the letters of the seven churches in chapter two. We did it during our disciple groups on Tuesday. Um, if you're not currently part of one and would like to get involved then do speak to even myself or John about how to get involved. Today we're starting chapter three in the book of Revelation Um Vashti is kindly going to read this passage this morning. I think the reading's on 1029. Am I right, thinking? There you go. Look. I haven't got it written. I have really. 1029, or on your Bible apps. But yeah, we're starting at chapter 3. So we're
1: reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, which is the entirety of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you are either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Great, thank you very much, Vashti. We'll do keep that bit of the Bible open. We'll be looking at that and, uh, uh, and other places. But let's just pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you understand fully what it is like to be human. Thank you that you were tempted as we are yet without sin. Thank you that you understand weakness, suffering, sadness, Jesus, thank you that you know exactly what we're going through, each one of us here this morning. You know our joys, our sorrows. So thank you that you can speak to each and every one of us because you, you know our hearts, you know our weaknesses, you know our sins, and you are almighty God. The first and the last, the one who was dead and now lives forevermore, the ruler of the kings of the earth the one who sustains every atom in this universe by your speech. So Lord, please speak to us this morning. Change us, show us more of yourself that we might love you and live for you. Amen. Well, as we considered last week, we are all in a battle. Whether we recognize it or not, we're in an eternal battle, a, a battle that has eternal consequences for us, the people around us. Can we see it? Can we see who we are up against? John has been very clear, hasn't he? The whole of revelation is very clear who Christians are battling against. Can we see who fights for us? The one who has already won and yet commands us to conquer. Can we see what Jesus sees? See, in a battle, often seeing, I presume, is is vital. Whether it's the seeing, inverted commas, of radar in the Second World War or the seeing of the decoding of the Enigma machine, these things are the topic of films, aren't they? Or or today, seeing with satellite imagery, you, you, you know, that thing that comes on the news, that picture with the sort of target, and then boom. Seeing is critical to victory. We continue our series in the book of Revelation, and if the first four letters to the churches are largely about persecution, or the context of persecution, these last three are largely about perception, seeing, like Jesus sees. See, in Sardis, we see that what looks alive is actually dead without Jesus. In Philadelphia, we see what looks weak is actually powerful and immovable with Jesus and in Laodicea we see what looks powerful is sickening without the provision of Jesus now uh, just a qu- quick recap in each of the letters to the churches that the risen and glorified Jesus instructs John or he, he sends his angel to John and instructs John to write to the churches, reminding them of his, that's Jesus' identity. And this is the same in these last three letters. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Ultimate knowledge, ultimate power. He holds the seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. He's got perfect spiritual power, perfect communication to the churches. In in chapter 3, verse 7, we learn that Jesus is the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. He has power in the kingdom of David, the covenant community. He's holy and true. And then In chapter 3, verse 14, we learn that Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, or better, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is able to provide whatever is needed in holiness for his people. So Jesus is introduced at the beginning of each letter, as we saw last week. He also commands people to listen to what the Spirit says. We see that in chapter 3, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 13, in chapter 3, verse 22. He speaks today through the written words of John, which is the voice of the Spirit. So, I don't know if this was in your mind, as we were listening to Vashti reading, we were listening to the, the voice of the Holy Spirit God's word and God's spirit go together. Uh, And the question that comes at the end of each letter is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So are we listening? Are you? Am I listening? Because at the beginning of the book, we've been told that if we do listen, if we repent and keep what is said in this book, if we fight like we're encouraged to fight in this oh, we will be blessed. We will be blessed beyond measure, and we'll see some of the amazing blessings that are ours if we conquer. So that's the repeated structure of each of the letters to the church. As Jesus speaks, he, he affirms the church in what is good, he calls to repentance, he warns for rejection of his words, and promises wonderful blessings for conquering, for winning in the battle, for those who hear and repent which are the blessings of final salvation, of being in the New Jerusalem, of having a name written on us that's the same as Jesus' name. I mean, what a blessing. Now, as I said, these th- last three letters have uh, the common theme of perception, and we will be working through each letter in our discipleship groups, so I will miss stuff out that we'll be hopefully pick up when we go into it in more detail, but let's look at the letter to Sardis. What looks alive is dead without Jesus, so wake up. What looks alive is dead without Jesus, so wake up. Verse 1, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus sees what is real, and it's the opposite of their reputation in Sardis. They had a reputation of being a living church, but when Jesus looked at this church, it was dead. And so he commands the church to wake up or literally to keep watch. What could that mean? Well, it's the language that Jesus uses, that the New Testament uses, of being ready for the return of Jesus. It's clear from the language of verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. This is the language of Jesus' return at the end of time, coming like a thief in the night. And so we're not entirely sure what works they were not doing, but Jesus says that their works were incomplete. There was something about this church which had forgotten that Jesus was going to return. See, the return of Jesus is, is linked to so many aspects of living the Christian life, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says of Christians what does it mean to be a christian they turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven that's what it means to be a christian we're looking forward to the return of jesus or in 1thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2 paul speaks of the christians for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night and then he says of them we are not of the night All the darkness, so then let us not sleep, but let us keep awake and be sober. See, whatever was the issue of morality in the church inside us, they had forgotten that Jesus was coming back. Their lifestyle had drifted into slumber, and they needed to wake up and be reminded that Jesus was coming back. And He warns them if they don't wake up, He will come at a time when they're not ready, which is the metaphor of those who will be judged. So he says in verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who are not soiled, have not soiled their garments. So there's still people in Sardis who were looking to the return of Jesus, who were waiting for him to come back and they had not soiled their garments. They had not drifted into slumber, whether it was drunkenness or sexual immorality, we don't know. Whatever was lacking in the church in Sardis they need to wake up and be aware that Jesus is coming back. And if they were to repent and to, to live in that way, well, then I will never blot his name out of the book of life. We may have questions about that phrase. I haven't got time to go too into it. But, but he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Part of justification by faith alone is trusting in the return of Jesus, that when he returns, we will be declared righteous by him. So, to be justified by faith alone is to look forward to Jesus' return, to expect his salvation there. We won't go to sleep thinking that the Christian life is all about this world, what God does for me today, now in my life. We're looking to that day. See, going to sleep is catastrophic in battle, isn't it? It might be the sentry that falls asleep and the enemy breaches the outer wall, or the fighter pilot who goes to sleep. It's not going to end well. Sleep ends in death and defeat. And conversely, the confidence of Victory is, is, looking, is remaining awake, looking forward to that day when Jesus returns. The, the confidence ex- ex- exuded by a Churchill, you know, I'm not going to try and do the, the voice, you know, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall never surrender. It's looking forward to victory, keeping fighting. Are we doing that? Are we awake? Or do we need to wake up and be reminded that one day Jesus will return and we will stand before him. See, if, if a church, and may this never be us, has as its guiding light success in the present, if it's more concerned with its reputation now than its reputation on that day when Jesus returns, it will go to sleep and die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even in our own lives, we can look alive, we can look Christian. But if we think that the Christian life is all about this life, well, then we are in danger of going to sleep, of losing sight of what Jesus will say to us on that day when he returns in great glory and sends his angels out to collect the living and the dead, all his elect. Do we need to wake up? Jesus says, the church in Sardis looks alive, but it's dead without Jesus, so wake up to his return. Secondly, what looks weak is powerful through Jesus. So hold fast. What looks weak is powerful through Jesus. So hold fast. Verse eight, Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power and yet you have kept my word. And have not denied my name. They had little power. Philadelphia, little Philadelphia. They knew that they were weak. Jesus knew that they were weak. But they were more concerned for being obedient to Jesus' word and not denying his name. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. They were trusting in Jesus rather than their own power. They were tiny and weak, so of course they were trusting in Jesus. They didn't deny his name. They obeyed his word. How mighty that made them. I remember talking to a Christian soldier, part of Para, when I was at a previous church, and he was decorated for bravery in Afghanistan, MBE and all that. In fact, he was the commander of Tupara, Uh, Christian, he was saying that the perspective he had in battle was of godly indestructibility. He wasn't bothered about the strategy. He was receiving commands. He was to be faithful and obedient to those commands. And if a bullet had his name on it, there's nothing he could do about it. He was indestructible in God, if, if God determined that he was gonna get killed, he'd be killed, and if God determined that he wasn't gonna be killed, he wouldn't be. So he went in with confidence and faithfulness into the most incredible situations. There's been a book written by him, uh, written, sorry, about him serving in Afghanistan, leading his unit through minefields, you name it. He was concerned for faithfulness, obedience, And the church in Philadelphia was weak. It had little power, but they obeyed orders. They kept Jesus' word. They did not deny his name. And what was true of them? Were they puny and pathetic? No. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. No one. And then Jesus says, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold... I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Remember the dangers of the enmity of the synagogue in 95, 96 AD, which is when uh, this book was written. They were an established legal religion. If you were Jew, you could escape the requirement to offer sacrifices to the emperor on pain of death. And yet we know from both the book of Acts and Jesus being betrayed by the Jewish nation into the hands of the Gentiles, that continued and got worse towards the end of the first century. That's why we must read the Bible in his, its historical context, isn't it? Because What horrendous anti-Semitism could be justified by reading in the flat the fact that this is a synagogue of Satan. What what made it a synagogue of Satan was it was colluding with the Roman powers to kill Christians. What was going on? And yet Jesus says of this puny, tiny Philadelphia church, because they were faithful to his name and obedient to his word, they will come down and bow down before your feet and will learn that I have loved you which I presume means that they would become Christians. Why else, or how else would somebody learn that Jesus loves Christians, loves Philadelphia? See, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to be intimidated by worldly religion. The kind of religion that opposed Jesus, that opposed the apostles, that colludes with the power of the state and opposes God's people. It's wealthy, it's legal, it's numerous, it is powerful. It's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus looks at this little, tiny Philadelphia church that was faithful to him and obedient to his word, and he says... I've opened a door for you that no one will be able to shut. That worldly, powerful, religious body down the road that makes life difficult for you, they will come and bow down before you. And verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You're the powerful ones, Philadelphia. See things as I see them, Philadelphia. (coughs) Being faithful to Jesus, being obedient to his word, makes us safe. So hold fast astounding privileges here aren't there the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God never shall he go out of it and I will write, uh, write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name is there anything more secure than having all these names written on us by the the risen Jesus Christ. It's it's so easy, isn't it? We we gather here on a Sunday morning we think we're weak and we're puny. But if we are those who are faithful and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, we couldn't be in a safer place. We couldn't be a more secure place. We couldn't be in a more powerful place. Uh, So many war films bring out the principle don't they that what looks tiny and weak can win significant victories I think my favourite is probably the 300 at Thermopylae Does does anybody know what I'm talking about the 300 Greek soldiers who because they were in a cleft in the rock stopped a million 300 million
1: incredible
0: they were in the rock in the right place in the rock and if it's not too cheesy if we are in christ if he's written his name on us the the name of the new jerusalem the name of the the temple of god where we will meet forever can we be safer can we be more victorious no and yet people will give that up because they're afraid of the powerful religions around us. No, says Jesus, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. Do not give way to worldly power. Don't be swayed. Just to say a a little word about our little church, Cornerstone Church. We're very weak. We're tiny and puny, pathetic. We've relied on the resurrection power of Jesus. May that never change. Please, Lord, may it never change that we somehow start to trust in money or numbers or reputation or being acceptable. No, we're a bunch of broken people feeling our weakness and so we keep crying to Jesus if he opens a door No one can shut it. We must never start to think to ourselves, human power is what is needed, human acceptability is what is needed. We must never start to feel inferior to churches that have Maseratis parked outside or even better breakfast than the one that we have and are thousands strong because the dangers will become like Laodicea. Because that's what they were like. And that's our final letter. What looks powerful is sickening to Jesus unless he provides fellowship. What looks powerful is sickening to Jesus unless he provides fellowship. If you'd gone to the Laodicean church gatherings, you'd have been impressed. They they would be all dressed in Gucci, whatever the fashionable stuff is now. Not just Maseratis, but... Every imaginable car is parked outside and state-of-the-art tech, even better breakfast than ours, a range of activities would be mind-boggling. The preaching would be much slicker than me because they would have the best trained speakers, the best that money could buy. Their meetings are packed and Jesus is sickened. Why? Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a rather polite way of putting it, actually. It says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Why? Why is Jesus so sickened by them? Well, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. They thought all was well because they were prosperous. Outwardly and worldly terms, they were very impressive. They thought they were rich. The reality was very different. Jesus saw reality. They didn't see like Jesus saw. They were perceiving themselves in complete opposite to what was reality. The church thought it was rich, but it was poor. It thought it was prosperous, but it was pitiable. It thought it sore, but it was blind. It thought it needed nothing, but because it was well clothed, but actually it was shamefully naked before God. Nothing can be more tragic in war than underestimating the enemy and being under equipped. Now, I've done a little bit of research. I may get this wrong, so do correct me if I got this wrong, but I think General Custer, Custer's last stand, thought there were not as many Indians as actually they were and didn't think he needed reinforcements. So away they went. They all died. The battle we face cannot be fought by human power. If we look to human power, we will be destroyed in the face of Satan. So no money, no political deals, no buildings, no numbers can win in this battle. Only, only Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has been victorious against Satan, who has beaten death, who has dealt with sin. Now, maybe we've been part of churches that are wealthy and powerful and well taught. And maybe we look to churches that are wealthy and powerful and well taught. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Please let me hear me. Those are good things. Except when they become what people trust. Except when the money is trusted rather than Jesus Christ. The numbers are trusted rather than Jesus Christ. Our doctrinal statements are trusted rather than Jesus Christ. May that never be us. May we never be a church that is confident in human power. Why? Because it sickens Jesus. The greatest confidence comes from trusting in Jesus Christ, depending on him going to him for all the provision that we need. And that's what he tells the Laodiceans to do. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. You know, you're so interested in buying stuff, well, come and buy from me. What gold refined by fire so that you really may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen unsalved to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. Jesus is pleading with Laodicea. He's echoing the language, I think, of Isaiah 55. He's not saying that they need to do something to sort of pay for all this to come because Jesus loves them and he loves his churches. That's what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's, he's count, He can see what they need in the battle. They just need to come to him. Isaiah 55 says this. come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. because he loves all the churches. And I think this message to Laodicea is, if you like, a message to all the churches. We know that each individual letter is for the whole church. You know, this is the picture of the seven churches the perfect churches throughout the whole of history and uh, many of us were looking at um, Ephesians the letter to the Ephesians and, and the, the command to return to your first love and, and we, as we go through these letters we thought well, how? how am I suppo- Jesus how am I supposed to love you above all things? How am I supposed to be faithful to you in the face of persecution? How am I supposed to live a holy and godly life with so many temptations around me to to be thinking about your return and I I think the answer is in verse 20 to all the churches Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock Jesus is standing at the door of your life and my life he's knocking he wants to come in will you let him in Will I let him in? Will we let him in? Not, not just when we become Christians, this is written to all the churches, to all Christians. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. If, if we open the door of our lives, if we say, Jesus, I, I need you. Yes, I turn away from, I repent of those things that you're calling me to repent of. As a church, we repent of those things that we're called to repent of because you love us, because you want us to conquer, because you want us to be there in the temple, in the New Jerusalem, with your name on us, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He promises to come in, to eat with you, to eat with me, and with it's the picture of intimate friendship and fellowship. I mean, imagine you had an email. I don't know who you really admire or who you think is really powerful. I don't know. It might be Rishi Shunak. It might be somebody else. You might be keen for a new government. It might, I, I don't know. Or, or I don't know, p- people you follow, influencers. Oh, I've got no idea who they are. But you, you follow, imagine they knocked on your door, sent you an email. Can I come round? I'd like to just help you. I, I'd, I'd like to give you some power to to together, so we can achieve this thing together. Can we? Can we conceive who it is who is saying this to all his people, those whom he loves? those whom he disciplines, those whom he reproves, he wants to be zealous, Who he wants to repent, and we think, well, how am I going to do that, Jesus? I can't do that. I keep trying to do it. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Can you hear him knocking? Will you let him in? the first and the last, the living one, the Alpha and the Omega, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who will judge all people, wants to come in and eat with you and eat with me. We let him in for the first time or for a fresh time, for fresh fellowship. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray now to let him in. Should we do that? Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have conquered. You have won a victory over Satan and sin and death. And thank you that you command us to conquer with you, through you. Lord, sorry for keeping you out. Please forgive us. Just a moment of quiet, maybe for ourselves to think what we need to repent of. Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised to come in. Please come in, Lord please come in and eat with me, eat with us and us with you for that is how to conquer. Amen.